Hi, and welcome again to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This is Lisa Gonzalez. In this episode of our podcast, Christopher Mitchell introduces us to John Bocut, Director of Information Systems and Network Director of the Spanish Fork Community Network in Utah. Spanish Fork began working on its publicly owned network in 1999, when both business and residential customers expressed their need for better telecommunications. Since then, it has saved substantial public dollars and brought more reliable and affordable connectivity to the community. Spanish Fork also uses its network to share local, live, and recorded events via its local station. The community programming has proved to be one of the most popular features of the Spanish Fork Community Network. Here are Chris and John talking about the network and its place in the community. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Today, we're talking with John Bocut of Spanish Fork, Utah. He's the Director of Information Systems and the Spanish Fork Community Network Director. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, so I've been in Utah, um, mostly southern Utah, and I flew through Salt Lake City once. It's uh, incredibly beautiful. I don't know how anyone gets any work there done, um, but uh, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about where Spanish Fork is located and the size of the town. We're about 50 miles south of Salt Lake City, and uh, it's a nice little community. Um, you know, it started out really as a farming community, and it's grown into uh, a lot more than that. And uh, so we have about 35,000 residents, and there's about 10,000 homes in Spanish Fork. The city has its own electric utility. Uh, is that right? That's correct. We've actually had an electric utility since the early 1900s. So um, that's been something that the city did years ago and it was really the city council who got together and and realized that electricity was going to be a vital utility to any community and so they started their own electric business to bring electricity to the residents of Spanish Fork. And does that electric network extend beyond town or is it just within the city proper? It's pretty much just the city proper. It goes a little bit outside and there's some um, you know bordering areas that, that we service but it's mostly just the city. And now the utility has uh, built its own cable network. Does that have the same boundaries then? Well, we actually have a state law in Utah that requires, that says that we cannot go outside of our city limits. So for us, we cannot service some of those other communities that, that use some of the other services of Spanish Fork, but they cannot receive our cable service. In fact, when we built our head end building, um, right across the street had not been annexed and there were two homes and they were literally right across the street from our building and they walked over and asked us for service and we could not because of state law deliver any services there. Oh, that sounds like a, a painful situation. Um, it's it's not rare, unfortunately. I wish it was the first time I'd heard that story. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm afraid so. <laughs> um, well, let's let's go back in time uh, a fair amount because the the cable network is not a recent addition. Uh, why why did you build a cable network and when did it all start? Well, you know what? It really started um, with that the the vision of the council that that started the electric business because it would have been difficult for us to do without the fact that we already had our electric business. But in the year 2000, the city council faced the same kind of problems that that in the early 1900s the councils faced. We realized, they realized that uh, internet was going to be an absolutely vital service, a vital utility for our residents, and there was no high-speed internet in Spanish Fork in the year 2000. And 
that just couldn't be that way. We had residents that were uh, coming to us saying, this just isn't working. You know, we, I can use a dial-up modem, but they could get in their car and drive the 10 miles to Provo, which is the larger city just north of us, and, and retrieve their files and drive back in the time it would take them to download them across the dial-up modem. The famous sneaker net, although usually usually it's just people walking around, but certainly driving is they had another. Had to drive reason. around, yeah, and and we had businesses that were telling us that look, we're going to have to move out of your community. We, you know, a small mom and pop real estate agent who who can't get on the the MLS, the multi listings, and and unless they want to spend a thousand dollars a month for a T1, which was ridiculous. I mean, they couldn't afford that. Um, so for us, it was built, it was, it was just this pent-up demand and people just saying, you've got to help us. We have to do something. And it, it kind of started because the, the electric department had already started to put in some fiber optic cable and they were going to connect in all of their electric substations and they were going to connect some of the city buildings and whatnot. And so they had, they had actually started to install that fiber optic um, ring when the city manager, Dave Euler, said, you know, we really, maybe we can do something else with this. And uh, that was, that pent up demand and the fact that we were already in the process of putting in some fiber optic cable was kind of the perfect storm that we needed to, to really get this launched. And that's, that's a time when there was a number of other networks that were already operating, uh, almost entirely cable networks. There was only a few that were thinking about doing a pure fiber network. And so at that time, then uh, you said about the fiber ring, I presume that you added a cable then to get to most people's homes uh, in combination with the fiber. Right. And, and when we looked at it, we, you know, we built a, an ad hoc committee of residents and business people and the local school district and churches. And we, we brought them all together and said, should we do anything? What can we do? What would you like us to do? And, and it was a resounding, you must do something. You must help us. Very clear direction from the people. That's it was very, helpful. very clear. It, it was, it was uh, you know, they, they just knew it had to happen. We had to do something. So we looked at all the technologies. We looked at fiber to the home. Um, in the year 2000, fiber to the home was about three times more expensive than a, a hybrid fiber coax. Um, we looked at, at, at a copper solution, you know, doing VDSL and visited different places around the country that were doing different technologies. Um, and really settled on the technology that we felt was tried and true, and we went with a hybrid fiber coax, which at the time was very small nodes. I mean, the node size is really what would, when you're designing it, will determine the type of Internet that you'll be able to, to offer. And most hybrid fiber coaxes, most cable companies had built their systems for cable television. We wanted to build one for high-speed Internet, and we made our nodes about 150 homes past, which was a fraction of the size of most uh, nodes in those days, and, and and the technology that we deployed, we really wanted something that was tried and true, that was really going to work for our customers, and I, and I think we succeeded. It's It's been a very nice technology for us. I think that's a, a, a really important point because we we often, I mean, particularly those of us that really love fiber and see the potential for fiber moving forward, we tend to talk about cable networks as though they were all the same, but there really is a, a tremendous difference based on how it's engineered, um, not just on node size, but uh, a number of different uh, factors that um, make a big difference in terms of how the actual end user will experience it. And so um, I'm really glad that you made those points. I think it's a really valuable contribution. 
Yeah, and it, it really is. And we ran 12 fibers to every node. Um, you know, we're in a position now where when we start doing node splits, the, the technology is caught up to where we can split a node twice without actually moving anything, putting any additional infrastructure, just lighting up some additional fiber and replacing the actual node module. So it gives us a lot of growth potential, um, especially with the new technologies that have been keeping up. So uh, the, the, the ability to deliver Internet was why it was built. I mean, I'm a network engineer by trade, and so when we were building it, we were building it for Internet. Yes, we offer cable television and we have added phone service, but we built it for Internet. And the interesting thing that I just saw as we were doing a little bit of research was that you issued 15-year uh, debt, and that was in 2000. And so we're very close to the end of that term. How is the debt payments going? Yes, we are, um, which is an exciting time for us. So we pay about uh, $670,000 a year in uh, debt service, um, and that debt was bonded in 2000, so it will be up in uh in under two years, we'll be through with the debt, um, and we get an additional $670,000 for the city council to use however they want. So that's that's a very exciting time. And just coincidentally, that's about the time I'm eligible for retirement, but uh, <laughs> that is purely a coincidence. But it has, and and so for us, that's that's a big deal. So uh, we're getting very close. And so you mentioned the node splits and that sort of thing. So you foresee um, being able to use uh, this investment for a while longer still without having to put a substantial amount back into um, expanding the network then is what I'm understanding. Well, I mean, it'll be more in-place expansion. Um, we do have a lot more capability. We just, um, of course, offered, we just expanded our, our offering from the 12 meg starter tier. So we have 12 meg down. Um, on our starter tail, one one and a half meg up, and then we just expanded that into our 20 meg down and uh, our 5 meg up, and we have our our 55 meg down and our 10 meg up. And then this is all residential stuff. But quite honestly, we have you know about 50 customers that took us up on the 50 meg service, the 55 meg service. Mm -hmm. it, you know, you, the the sweet spot for this network is this 20 meg service, and that's what people are purchasing, and that's what they want to that's what they want to pay for. Um, you know, we're going to launch uh, any week now 111 meg service, but again, there just isn't going to be a, a huge demand for that. You, you know, and so you can go giggy to a house, but the reality is, if if they have to pay for it, if they, if they can get 20 meg service uh, for $38, that really meets their needs, and so they they aren't buying these higher tiers from us right. yet. We know right. that will change. And then we can do the node splits. We can do DOCSIS 3.1 is coming, which will, again, uh, give us some additional bandwidth capabilities. Um, we split the nodes, and we could offer two, three, four, five hundred megabit per second service, and we can start doing that within a year. And uh, the cost, the, the capital expenditure is reasonable as opposed to going fiber to the home and, and tearing out all that coax, um, which we could do. I mean, we put in conduit. We didn't do any direct bury. So we really look at it as we built a network of conduit, uh, and and if if it becomes the right solution to do fiber to the home, we can do that, and we're in a better position than than um, most cities since we do have this network of conduit. Right, actually, Cedar Falls just went through that, so you not only have yourself in a good position, but the experience of others who have who have been there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, actually, I was just uh, to follow up on what you were just saying. I was just speaking with uh, Dana Bailey, the uh, communications person for Chattanooga's Electric Power Board, 
And she was saying when they were talking to people about why they wanted to make this investment, they kept saying the the point is not that you need 100 megabits tomorrow. It's that at some point you're going to need it, and when you need it, we'll deliver it. And exactly. I think that's that's the key point is some people look at community-owned networks and they think, oh, well, it's not delivering a gig. Well, the fact is that right now what we need is not necessarily a gig. And in fact, when most people talk about a gig, what we're talking about is that the network should not be slowing you down. And and as soon as the network starts slowing people down in Spanish Fork and in other communities, they invest. And so, uh, you know, as you need more speed, it's available. As opposed to on my Comcast, for instance, um, you know, they pretty much make decisions on using different criteria than what my neighborhood in St. Paul is concerned about. And that's absolutely true. You know, we make decisions on on you know serving our community that I, I'm not convinced that Comcast, our direct competition, makes makes their decisions based on the same thing. I'm, I'm pretty sure they don't. Um, and so that's that's one of the significant differences, and and that's a mindset difference that permeates clear through your network design and everything you do for your customer. You know, in our community, our prices tend to be um, substantially lower than what Comcast is offering. Right. Well, that's and that's one of the reasons that I think uh, you've identified in the past in in uh, our interviews and articles uh, talking about your tremendous success. Um, how many people in Spanish Fork subscribe to your service? Uh, right now, we have about 80% of the residents take a service from us. Um, whether that is you know multiple services, but at least one service, about 80%. That's really incredible. I mean, <laughs> to to have built a network that has captured 80% when you're competing against such powerful entities is is just it's a testament to doing something right. Um, so one of the things that that we're always curious about is how the presence of the local government has impacted uh, finances for local government. Yeah, and it really has. The um, there's a couple of things. There's there's the obvious, the direct uh, fact that that we make about a million dollars a year after we pay all of our debt service, after we pay all the employees and we pay for everything else, there's about a million dollars of retained earnings that, that we have. Now, a lot of that gets reinvested into the plant, but it does allow for the, the city council to make decisions on what they want to do with that money. And of course, after the bonds are paid off, that money just goes up by over half a million dollars. And so that's really, because this is owned by the city council, it's owned by our community, they have the ability of doing whatever they want with that. So that's, that's the most direct. But the more indirect things is the fact that we connected up all of the city buildings, um, which allowed us to you know, put in a, a voice over IP phone system for our city, which saves us a substantial amount of money and, and gives us a lot more features than we had with our Alcentrex system. Um, it allows us to develop software and to have interconnectivity that was that was just dreamed about um, before we had this fiber connection to each of the buildings. It gives us control for security on our electric substations. We have monitors that we can monitor that. We have a network operations center that is that uh, the calls for both our utility for our services, our three services, but also for other utilities, if they have problems with those, they can get a hold of a, a real person at night and allow the, the electric department, for instance, to be able to concentrate on getting the power back on while somebody else takes the phone calls. And all of that is provided just because we built it anyways for our, for our utility and it's available and it is used by the other utilities and by and and by the city. So, And we provide, of course, internet access uh, for the city of Spanish Fork uh, for free. 
When you say it's reinvested, I, I look with interest at your recent decision uh, to offer phone service. You know, uh, Google, in trying to decide what services it wanted to offer in 2013, uh, looked at telephone service and said, no, nah, it's too complicated, there's too little money in it. Now, you came to a different conclusion recently, and I, I'm curious if you can walk us through why you decided to offer phone service. Well, when we originally looked at it in the year 2000, um, we thought about phone service, of course, or that triple play offering. But at the time, the voice over IP really wasn't mature yet. And so we would have had to invest on, you know, old school switch and, and that type of technology and, and really didn't feel comfortable with it and didn't, wasn't sure that we were going to get an ROI. At least I couldn't make the ROI work on it, and so we postponed it. Um, I think the decision to do that came from the fact that, that we realized we really could do this at, at a substantial savings for our residents, and that's important to us. Again, you can look at it, and, and you can look at it from Google's perspective or, or from uh, Comcast's perspective and say, yeah, but there's not a huge amount of money that's going to be made from that, and that's true. We had to keep the ROI good and it had to be positive, but that just meant we had to be careful about how much money we spent in delivering this service so that we didn't you know, buy a million-dollar switch and do it that way. And this is one of the cases where we actually partnered with another company. And so they do, they are actually the CLEC and they're behind us. And, you know, we, we're the forward facing to all of our customers, but we have a CLEC behind us. And that was done to keep the CapEx down, really. Essentially, it's just we want to, you know, they already had a switch, uh, uh, a soft switch. They already had some, some technology and capability. And we just wanted to keep our CapEx down. And we're able to offer, a, you know, a phone line for $14.95. And you know, and really deliver it for under twenty dollars. I mean, I know that the the CenturyLink in our area will claim a, a fifteen dollar phone line, and then when you're done, you're still paying thirty bucks um, or yeah. five. So I mean, it, it, it yeah. makes no sense. Yeah. So with us, our goal was to keep it below twenty dollars. Once you put all the fees and taxes and stuff that we have no control over, it still want we still wanted to be under twenty dollars, and it was done as a service. And it's our least penetrated. I mean, we all know. I think we all know that, that landlines are slowly dying, that you know, the cellular business is, is taking over, and that's fine. And, but that's one of the reasons we had to keep our CapEx down is we, know, we knew that this doesn't have you know, a 20-year 20, 20 payback on the investment on the phone side. However, it does save our residents a lot of money, and again, the ROI was actually very good. Right. It's really, I mean, we talked a little bit about the amount of money that goes into the, the local government uh, treasury that keeps pressure on the tax base low. But to, to be able to offer these services at, at a lower cost really keeps a lot of money in uh, people's pockets, which is tremendously important for supporting local businesses, making sure that people feel they have enough money to go out to restaurants and that sort of thing. There's so many th there's so many games that these big telephone companies play uh, in terms of these fees, and uh, and I've seen that so many times where um, you you have a telephone company that promises to keep your price the same for five years or six years or however long, and you find out that's just sort of a part of the price, and they just tack on these miscellaneous fees that they just invent, um, you know, in a different part of the bill and say, oh, that wasn't that wasn't covered, <laughs> so. Yeah, I think people, I'm sure, really appreciate being able to have a bill that they understand from you. Yeah, and and it is it was critical to us. And again, you, you know, Chris, it is something that we look at every time we make a decision is is how does this help our residents? And I, I'm not convinced the other companies do that. I mean, when we look at it, we say we save our residents 
about $420,000 a year on phone service because they purchased their service from us instead of from the incumbent provider. That's significant to us. Um, you know, we look at it as internet and we say, well, our internet, we save about $2.5 million per year for our residents if they had to pay the same price for the incumbent provider. Billy Ray in Glasgow, Kentucky, just in a recent interview, he made the case that it's almost as though an armored truck, you know, just tipped over and dropped two and a half million dollars in the community every year. Uh, it's pretty significant. Yeah, it's, it's very significant. And, and it is critical to what we do. And, and sometimes, um, sometimes for some reason, it, it, people don't look at it. But it's, it, the truth is, the way the Internet is and how important utility it is to people, you're going to buy it from somebody. Um, if you don't live in our community, you're going to pay what the incumbent provider charges. And to come up with the numbers that I did was that it was very simple. We know what the we know what the competition charges. If you had to pay their prices instead of the prices that we charge, you would, you know, you, the the community would be paying, you know, two and a half million dollars more per year for the same service. Actually, for less service because customer service is something that we do, and the incumbent provider uh, doesn't fully understand. And you do other things, too, in terms of local programming. Um, I, I understand there's an entertaining story uh, demonstrating the power of your local programming. Can you share that with us? Yeah, I know that's been a real surprise for us. I mean, when we sat down in a, in a little hotel room in, in Georgia and, and came up with the idea of the Spanish Fork Community Network, we wanted to have a channel that, that we could do, you know, that we could go out and film things that are going on in our community and, and put out there. And, and we saw what, what uh, Noonan, Georgia was doing. We were very impressed, and, and we wanted to do some of those things for us. I don't think we fully understood how important this was going to be to our community. And it, it was a, quite shocking. We know that because if it goes off the air, we get the phone call. So, uh, and, and what we do is we just go out and we just film everything. And we just want to put our people, our community, our traditions, our heritage uh, on the television. You know, it's been a lot of growth. And our town has grown up um, and turned more into a bedroom community for the larger community just to the north. And there's, you know, less agriculture and, and there's a lot of changes. And we wanted to inform all of those new residents about the, the traditions and heritage of Spanish Fork. It was critical to us. And so uh, we just go out and we just do everything. You see live broadcasts of our local parades, uh, city council, planning commissions. We do all the, a bunch of high school sports live and then on, also on tape delay. Um, we go out and do little kicker soccer. So when your you know, six-year-old is in a soccer game, you can go home because you had to miss it because you had a meeting. You can go home and watch it at night. So they're watching on television the live broadcast of city council, and, and you know, they'll see a, a subject that they're interested in, and they just jump in their car and drive down to the city building and come in so that they can speak, as long as they hurry before the, the issue is right. off. <laughs> Uh, we didn't we didn't envision that. I mean, that's one of those things that we all kind of just smiled and went, wow, that's pretty powerful. We didn't realize we had that much power, um, but it has been. Uh, and even the even the replays, you know, we had a situation where they were bringing in some windmills and you know, we had all kinds of city meetings to get people involved in these windmills and make sure they understood where they were going and how big they were going to be. And and quite honestly, it's hard to get people to come out to these meetings. We had like four or five meetings. Well, we do a, a bit on Channel 17 on these, and somebody sees it. And and all of a sudden, it becomes an issue, and they actually got the windmills moved. 
um, but they got to move further away from the residential areas. Now, you do a lot of the unique content, but does uh, Comcast also also have a channel that the city council meetings on, for instance? They do not. Oh, wow. So they just don't do that at all? They do not. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it, is, it is exclusive to our system. So, And most of our content is, is local, exclusive to uh, Spanish Fork. Okay. Uh, is there anything else that we should know uh, about Spanish Fork before we end the show? My point would be that you know, it takes a city council that is willing to take some risk and is willing to look forward. And that happened in the 1900s when we built our own electric department, and it happened again in, in the year 2000. And it continues to happen with every city council that, that understands what a great asset it is for our community and, and how much it does and how important it has become to our community. Uh, it, really is, it really is everything that we need it to be and is growing still, and our, our take rates are still going up. And uh, we're just very proud of what it does for our community. And, and notice it isn't we're very proud of the amount of money we make. It's we're very proud of what it does for our community. Right. And I, I guess to some extent it, it bears noting that there's been a tremendous amount of opposition in, in other parts of Utah. And so this overwhelming support uh, comes in a state that is generally not very welcoming of these sorts of investments. Or am I wrong in, in making an assumption there? No, you couldn't be more right. And what we have to do, of course, is to, to follow the legislature and make sure they're not doing things that are going to hurt us. And and quite honestly, they've been quite they've been quite good. We explain to them, and they they that we are successful, and and you don't have to do all these things. You don't have to do anything with us. Leave us alone, and and we will continue to to be successful. If you mess with it, uh, you could really cause a lot of problems in our community. So, but so far we've been good, and we follow it closely, and we we protect our community network. And it, it takes a, a vigilant effort to do that because it is a very conservative area in Utah. And there are people that really would rather we didn't. And they look at the failures of others and say, well, why aren't they failing? Well, we've already been audited by the state legislature. And they said, oh, yeah, it's not smoke and mirrors. These guys really are successful. Thank you so much for coming on the show and, and sharing your experiences. You are very welcome. I, I, I wish I had more opportunities where I can uh, just blow the horn of Spanish Fork and, and all the municipal networks and the success and what we do for our communities is, is huge. Great. Well, it's very good to talk with you. Thanks for taking the time. Chris, it was good to talk to you. That was Chris talking with John Bocut. Find out more about the Spanish Fork Community Network at sfcn.org. If you follow the Spanish Fork tag at uninetworks.org, you can read more about how the network serves the community first by offering economical landline service and about its foray into telecommunications. Thanks again for listening to the Broadband Bits podcast. Feel free to contact us with your ideas for the show. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. You can also follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Community Nets. This show was released on August 20th, 2013. Thank you to the group Break the Bands for their song, Escape, licensed using Creative Commons. Uh, 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 uh,